ways, but we come before the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Father, we have prayed many times over the weeks past that you are a, a mighty helper and we are people that are in need. So we just thank you that we can come before your throne and that you anxiously hear our prayers and you want to answer our prayers and you want to hear what we have to say. You want to have communion with us. You want us to communicate with you. And so in that vein, that's what we want to do. So we bring before you Mike Hoagland and we ask that you'd give him continued improved health that you'd allow him to be restored so that he can go out, out and about as he usually did. We also pray for Jerry Bonson as he is continuing to uh, need more strength as he goes from day to day. and Life is just tough for him to, to go out and about and do what he normally does. So, Father, we ask in the way that only you can that you would intervene in his life and that you would heal him so that he'd be able to, to do what he, he normally does and he'd be able to get over being just feeling sick. Father, we also pray for Judy Knutson as she burned her foot, that you would allow her to, frankly, be more careful, that she would be able to heal up from this, and she would be restored whole as well. Father, we do not want, do not want to forget talking about Brian Lane and waiting for a kidney and, and a pancreas. Every day he wakes up is totally different than the way most of us wake up, because he is... He, he sees that he, there is a necessity in his life to obtain these things or he's not going to be able to survive for the long haul. So, Father, we ask that you would intervene in his life, and these are big asks from a human perspective to get these, these items is really tough because there's a lot of people that are on these lists and a lot of needy people as well. But for you, they're not a big ask because you are a big God that can do whatever you choose. So, Father, we'd ask that you would choose to act on behalf of these people. We also pray for Terry Telgenhoff as he has had surgery, and he's going to have a recovery period. But it is uh, the, the prayer of these people that the surgery would, would work, whatever that looks like, and that he would be able to have mobility in his foot. and His rehabilitation uh, would be appropriate and proper, and he'd be able to do whatever he needs to get, whether it be physical therapy or otherwise. But through it all, he'd be able to look back and say that was good, and that the Lord healed me the way my heart's desire was. So we also pray for Barb. On the 29th, she's going to be having a, a series of tests, and right now that's a, that's a pretty nervous thing, wondering what that's, those tests are going to reveal. The Father, we ask that we just uh, place her in your hands and ask that you would heal her, that you would comfort her, that you'd give her a peace that passes all understanding, knowing that she is in the hands of the Savior, and the Savior all knows, already knows the results of these tests. So it's not going to take you by surprise, although it is somewhat of a surprise for us from, from week to week. So Father, we ask that you would just comfort the, this family, that you would be with Sharon as she is looking good on her cancer recovery, that right now she's, she's kind of at the end of her journey, and we're just grateful that she has radiation left, and, and that's hopefully going to be it. So, Father, we've prayed for, for a variety of people here over a period of time, and in all things, you are good, whether we recognize it or not. So, Father, as we dig into your word, we ask that you would reveal it to us, that we would be people of the word, that we would be like the Bereans, where we would study the word and want to know what it has to say. For, your good, for our good and for your glory, in Christ's name, amen. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be continuing on in the passage that we talked about last week. 
and we're going to be starting at verse 17, Matthew 5, verse 17. I'm going to read a, a couple of the verses first, and then I'm going to be making some comments uh, regarding what we have talked about and what I plan on talking about. Is Matthew 5, verse 17, it says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Now last week, the, the title of my message was Christ and the Scriptures. And what I spent a fair amount of time doing was talking about Christ's use of Scripture. He didn't try to change Scripture. He didn't try to ignore Scripture. And I gave a variety of passages, and I'm going to only talk about them in what I call a Reader's Digest version, just going through them really, really quickly. Uh, you see in Matthew 4 where there's the temptation of Jesus by Satan, and three times Jesus used a passage from Deuteronomy to refute whatever Satan was trying to do. We also see Jesus reading in the temple, when he revealed himself as the Messiah. He says, these words have been fulfilled in your hearing. We also see in the, uh, the Gospels where John the Baptist asks, is Jesus, are you the one that we should be looking for, or should we be looking for another? And Jesus quotes scripture out of Isaiah 61 and says, not only do I come to fulfill a scripture, but look at history, look at the prophecies, and compare them to my life and see if I'm actually doing that. Because Isaiah says things like, he's going to heal the lame, he's going he's to give sight to the blind, he's going to raise people from the dead, and go, well, actually, Jesus was doing that. So he was taking scripture, referring back to Isaiah and saying, evaluate my ministry in light of scripture. And then you have another one where Jesus says, I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. He didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus quotes scripture on the cross. So remember the title of last week was Jesus and scripture. So Jesus used scripture. He fulfilled scripture, and I'm going to I'm going to leave off last week by saying Jesus believed in the scriptures, he submitted to the scriptures, and he taught the scriptures. That was last week. This week, what we're going to be talking about is Jesus fulfilled the scriptures. And we're going to be looking at some passages, and I, I have to say, I was thinking about this this week, this is not what I would call the shallow end of the pool doctrinally or theologically or comparing scripture. This, this is not just your, let's tell you the story of David and Goliath and how David went out and he took a rock. And Okay, this is not like that. This is more complicated. This is comparing and contrasting what scripture has to say about a particular topic. So yes, I'm fully aware that this is not your normal, just your easygoing message. It's going to cause you you have to think and compare and, and kind of follow along with what I'm saying, but then it's incumbent on me to be clear in what I'm saying, is what I'm going to be talking about today is in what sense 
in what sense did Jesus fulfill the law, and in what sense did Jesus fulfill the prophets? Because it says here that Jesus came, says, I did not come to abolish the law of the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So if scripture says that, then we should be able to make a pretty firm case for how did Jesus fulfill the scriptures. So the first thing I'm going to do is talk about Jesus fulfilling the law, and then I'm going to take us and I'm going to say Jesus fulfilling the prophets. And was there a difference? What, what did that look like? Because scripture, you say, why, why, it's, it's worth asking, why am I giving this message? Because if I were to say to you, probably the vast majority, if not all of you, would say, do you believe that Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets? You do. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Yeah, yeah, we do. So then why do we need to go over this again? Well, from where I'm sitting, it gives you more confidence. It gives you bolstered confidence in what Scripture says is true. So Scripture says he came to fulfill it, so I'm going to go over how did he fulfill it, so you should be able to leave here and say, well, okay, it was the deep end of the pool. It was maybe difficult to understand. It was maybe difficult to follow but it bolsters your confidence in what Scripture says. Instead of me going up here and saying, Jesus Christ fulfilled the Scriptures, he filled the law, and he filled, fulfilled the prophets. You go, okay, so let's all hold hands, we go home, and there we're done. You say, well, how did he do it? I have no idea, but pastor said it, so it must be true. So I want to detail through that what that looks like. So I believe that without being misleading... There is only one sense in which we can say that Jesus fulfilled the law. He fulfilled the law by dying on the cross and thereby satisfying forever the demands of the law against those who would believe in him. So we're going to start out and we'll just, just throw the main point out there. I believe, without being misleading, that there's only one sense in which Jesus fulfilled the law, and that was by dying on the cross. All the other views of Christ fulfilling the law are misleading in terms of this great purpose, even though they might be true in themselves. Now, I want to explain that because some of you should be asking the question, how can it be that something true in itself can be misleading? How can that be? Let me give you an illustration of what that looks like. Suppose someone would ask you, why was it that George Washington crossed the Delaware on the night of January 3, 1777? Well, we've all heard how the humorist, the person that wants to make a joke, they could use the, the, the illustration of the chicken. Why did the chicken cross the road? To get to the other side. Well, you could use that same logic and say, why did George Washington cross the Delaware on the night of January 3, 1777? He says, well, he just wanted to get to the other side. That's true, but it's misleading. That's what I mean. How can something be true but misleading? Well, if you were to take a more serious approach, you might also say that the troops were restless and dispirited, and they were in need of some successful action. That, too, would be true. But it is misleading, because that is not entirely why they went across the Delaware. The real reason that Washington crossed the Delaware was to get to the British troops that were in Trenton and defeat them by this unexpected route and maneuver. And he did it in part as a general strategy for the American War of Independence. 
and to give any other reason, even if it were true, would be to cloud the primary purpose. So you're, I'm going to be giving you a couple examples of what people have said. Jesus fulfilling the law. I submit that the most, the most um, clear reason Jesus fulfilled the law was by dying on the cross. Now, here's going to be a couple other reasons that can be true, but they can be a bit misleading. One of them is Jesus kept the law perfectly. Some would say that Jesus fulfilled the law by keeping it perfectly. In fact, when John the Baptist was by the Jordan, Jesus says, you need to baptize me. And he objected. He says, I, I should not baptize you. You should baptize me. But Jesus says, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. So yes, it is true that Jesus kept the law perfectly. Jesus was stating his intentions to identify himself with man in every respect, including getting baptized. And he fulfilled the law perfectly. Another thing that, is, that has been pointed out is Jesus also fulfilled the law by means of his spirit in the lives of those who followed him. So the one that I consider to be misleading, true, but misleading, is Jesus kept the law perfectly. True, but it doesn't get to the core of how Jesus fulfilled the law. A second one is, is Jesus fulfilled the law by giving his spirit to believers. That's true too. But I don't believe that explanation is as clear as it could be either. We do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit, which is true. But I believe that explanation falls short of actually fully fulfilling the law. So I'm going to go on. And I want to talk about now, I'm going, to, I'm going to move from fulfilling the law to looking at the sacrificial system. Because the sacrificial system always pointed towards Jesus Christ. The sacrificial system was the law. That's what it was. And when, when we go way back to when the Israelites were going to leave Egypt, and then we had Passover, and the blood was put on the doorposts, and then they, they had Passover with unleavened bread, and they had a, a lamb. And then the Israelites moved out, and what was, Moses was given as the lawgiver, and immediately Aaron was given as the high priest, right? And then when the law says, when we were given, the law is, you have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Leviticus and Deuteronomy are the law. In fact, Exodus has a little bit of law in it as well, and Deuteronomy, as I've said before, means, it's defined as, the second law. When people want to do New Year's resolutions, they want to read through the Bible, and, and Genesis is great, and Exodus is pretty good too, and then they get into Leviticus, and it's like, boy, <laughs> you've got to be kidding, because it's the law, okay? So the law was given, and when when the law came, Jesus said that whenever there was sin, which there was constantly, a sacrifice needed to be given. So Moses was the lawgiver. Aaron was the high priest. Whenever the people sinned, which was all the time, there needed to be sacrifice. And that sacrifice 
always, always, always pointed towards a future sacrifice of the perfect Lamb of God. It always pointed that way. So, why would there be the need for sacrifice? I know I'm, 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 what I'm doing is I'm looking at the Old Testament, and then I'm going to go to the New Testament. And then I'm going to go back to the Old Testament, and it's my job to make sure I'm taking you along and not dragging you along. I make sure that you're understanding where I'm going. Well, some of you may object, but doesn't the Bible say that God does not desire sacrifices? Doesn't Hebrews 10 say that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins? And Psalm 40 says, sacrifice and offerings you did not desire. Burn offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Uh, yes, it does. It does say that. Well, then, how is it possible that these verses exist along with all the other verses that speak of the need for sacrifices in terms that have just been given? How can I say, Moses is a lawgiver, Aaron's a high priest, if there is sin, which there was all the time, you had to have sacrifice, and it pointed towards a perfect sacrifice later on. How can I say that if we have Hebrews in the Psalms says that God doesn't really require sacrifice? Well, the answer to this question is seen in the purpose for which God established the sacrifices. The sacrifices were not an end in themselves. If they were, we would have sacrifices even to this day. In reality, sacrifices acted as signposts to point to the Lord Jesus Christ, and God gave them in order to teach over a long period of time. God gave them to teach over a long period of time this. Sin meant death. Either the death of the individual, meaning the sinner, or the death of a substitute, an innocent substitute. Now I want to I want to give you an analogy or, or a comparison. The, this whole thing where God had sacrifices like signposts, it wanted the people to know sin means death. It's kind of like this. There was once a behavioral scientist who's Russian, and you'll all recognize the name. His name was Pavlov. Pavlov's dog. He was a Russian guy. And he wanted to know is could you get a dog or an animal to have a response, a behavioral response, just by something, by two different ways. So what he did was he, he, got, a, he got a little puppy, and he decided that every time he fed this puppy, he rang a bell, he'd wait a little bit, and he'd give it something to eat. The next day, he'd ring a bell and he gave it something to eat. And, the, and he wanted to know, will the dog one day, just because of the stimulus, the bell, will that dog salivate? Just because of the stimulus. So the dog's a puppy. They ring the bell, and they did this for a long period of time. And then one day the test came, and they rang the bell, and the dog, as we know dogs, when they're, when they're hungry, they just salivate, just, just drooling, but there's no food. And he said, yes. Behavioral things can affect the behavior of a dog. Just ring a bell, you've trained the dog. In that same vein, God, and, and I know this analogy doesn't hold perfectly true, God wanted the Israelites to know, why did the Messiah come? When Jesus came on the scene, it'd be like they had been trained 
over and over and over again with the sacrificial system that if you sin, somebody's going to die. Either the sinner or an innocent substitute. And he did this for centuries and centuries like Pavlov's dog. says, when you heard the bell, there's going to be food. Well, when somebody sins, somebody's got to die. And they did this over and over again. And also, when Jesus came on the, on the scene as the Messiah, they went, oh yeah, we need a Savior. Because somebody's going to die if somebody sins. And we sin all the time. So they, he wanted the people to know. Now, they, they responded imperfectly because you had the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law that were kind, they were just trying to derail the ministry of Jesus. But nevertheless... That is what Jesus wanted the people to know, that when he came, they would know we need a Messiah. So that is, my, that is, you might say, my defense for how Jesus fulfilled the law, is he came to be the perfect substitute. Now we're going we're gonna to go over here and say, but how did Jesus fulfill the prophets? How did he do that? Well... Christ fulfilled the law, but he also fulfilled the prophets, and he did it this way. When we speak of prophecy, when I say Christ fulfilled prophecy, this is what I mean. We are speaking of the direct statements in the Old Testament about the one, Jesus Christ, who was to come and to deliver Israel and redeem mankind. Statements that told who he was, where he would be born, what he would do, how he would suffer, and what would be the ultimate outcome of his suffering. Thus, when Jesus said he had come to fulfill the prophets, he meant he had come to fulfill the great statements that had been made about him in the Old Testament. That's what I mean. When Jesus came to fulfill the prophets, what did the Old Testament say about him? That's all I'm getting at. Now, it is clear that this is an enormous subject, Christ fulfilling the prophets. You could write a lot, and I'm sure many of you have the desire to do that, but you're holding back. Nevertheless, I'm going to condense this into what I think are some of the most important fulfillments of the prophecy. And the first one is, is in Genesis 3, verse 15. This passage is the first prophecy in the Bible about the coming of Jesus Christ. It says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. That is the very first prophecy. And now, I think it's very, rather interesting. This prophecy was not spoken to Adam or Eve. It was not spoken to Moses or the patriarchs or to any human being. This very first prophecy was spoken to Satan. That's who was being referred to, is he was giving this to Satan, and this verse was fulfilled at the cross of Christ. And in brevity, it says, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel, is a word picture of Jesus Christ will have his heel struck on the cross, because it won't truly kill him. He will raise again from the dead. When it says, and he will crush your head, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross was like crushing, killing Satan, because he'll never recover from this. 
that is, in, in Reader's Digest version, what that portion of Scripture means. is Yes, Satan, you will inflict injury on the Savior, but you won't kill him. It'll be just like a strike to the heel. But what Jesus Christ does on the cross will be a mortal and fatal blow to Satan, like crushing the head of a snake. And if you've ever done it, they're dead. I've done it. It's great fun. It really was. They're all rattlesnakes. That's an aside. We don't need to go down that road. <clears throat> but anyway, okay. The, the second one that was fulfilled was the, in Genesis 22, verse 18, where Abraham is told, go to a mountain that I will tell you. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, and I there you will sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. So uh, Abraham went three days distance. They find the mountain. They take him up there. He ties Isaac to the altar. And there's more details than what I'm telling you. But the long and short of it is, Abraham only had to offer his son. He never actually had to kill his son because an angel intervened. This hearkens to many, many, many centuries future when the same thing happens with God's son, Jesus Christ. God will offer his son, Jesus Christ, to die, to be a sacrifice for us. Only this one goes through. And Jesus Christ actually does suffer and die. And these are a picture, one way over here. And because Abraham did this, it says that through your offspring, meaning the offspring of, of Christ, people that will become believers, says all nations on the earth will be blessed. And that is exactly what happened, is we have Abraham, he was willing to sacrifice his son, he didn't have to, he was blessed because of this, and centuries later we see that blessing is Jesus Christ, who now would be a ransom for many. That's what that means. That's that's what that means. So, so in this in this particular passage, Christ fulfilled the prophets, the prophecy. So we're going to go on. It says much later. You see in Genesis forty nine, Jacob is dying. Jacob has his twelve sons come before him. Each son is given a prophecy. Each one, but Judah is the Judah, which was the chosen one, and we are not going to take the time to tell you how that all occurred. He wasn't the oldest. He was the chosen because the brothers ahead of him had done some things that disqualified them. We see that a special prophecy of a ruler and a lawgiver to come was given to Judah. It says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until... Some of your versions would say, until Shiloh comes. Now, we don't know the exact meaning of Shiloh, but this we do know. This word looks forward to a future descendant of Judah who would be both a king and a lawgiver, and to whom the Gentiles would be gathered. And what do you know? From the line of Judah, we go centuries, centuries on, Jesus Christ came from the line of Judah. The title of my message today is Christ Fulfilling Prophecy. This is important because if one of these prophecies didn't come true, then why are we here studying the Bible? And people that have more time on their hands than me have said that there are some 300 prophecies that came to pass in Scripture. 
And obviously, we're not going to go over all these. What I wanted to do is just go through some of the, what I consider to be the most important ones. We have another one, Psalm 22. Psalm 22, which I'm going to read. It's uh, starting at verse 14 through 18. It talks about the description of Christ at the crucifixion. Now, it would be one thing if this particular psalm was written in the Roman era when crucifixion was practiced, but it wasn't. It wasn't written by somebody who had seen a crucifixion and was basically reminiscing about what a crucifixion is like. That wasn't it either. This particular psalm, which is Psalm 22, was written a thousand years before crucifixion even was, you might say, invented. It didn't even exist. And in Psalm 22, starting at verse 14, it says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men have encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. That was written a thousand years before crucifixion was invented. And the message is Christ fulfilling scripture. He did. He fulfilled the scripture. And in addition, in Psalm 16, it talks about that after the resurrection, Jesus would be buried, and it says, You will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. That was written about a thousand years before this even happened. And in fact, Jesus Christ fulfilled that scripture. He did not decay in the grave. He, was, he rose again. And he lives even now. And we have one more that I'm going to go over is Isaiah 53, which should be very familiar to, to all of you. It says, this is probably the greatest passage because it explains the significance of Christ's death so clearly. So the question could be, well, what is that significance? It's just this, that when Jesus Christ died on the cross by crucifixion, he died not for himself, but for us. And I'm going to take little quotes out of Isaiah 53. It says, Surely he has took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This whole passage talks about he wasn't there to save himself. It was all about saving us, which was a fulfillment of Scripture. So, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close with one particular passage. Uh, here it is. But I first, before I get there, I want to I ask this. Have you ever asked yourself during a Bible study or during a study of the Bible, is there a theme to the Old Testament? And if so, what is that theme? 
Well, some may say, well, the only theme that I see in the Old Testament is, is a historical theme, meaning it talks about the birth of Jesus Christ, the rise and the development of the Hebrew nation. And that would be true. That would be true. Well, some people have, have studied the, the theme of the Old Testament. They say, well, no, actually the theme, what they think of the Old Testament is the evolution of ideas. Like, who is God? Who is man? Law, justice, the development of a nation into, into something that's, that's governed by laws, that kind of a thing. And so, still others deny that there is a unifying theme at all. And I think it's important as a believer in Jesus Christ that if this question were asked of you, what do you think? What do you think the unifying theme of the Old Testament is? Because as 1 Peter 3.15 says, be ready always to give an answer to any man that asks of the hope that is in you with meekness and respect. We should be able to give an answer. Every Christian should know and understand that indeed there is a historical side of the Old Testament as well as a development of an ideas, of ideas in the Old Testament. That's all true, but this is not the theme of the Old Testament. The theme is Jesus Christ, the one who was promised, who came, and whose ministry is now recorded and interpreted for our understanding. And I want to close with this. This is a passage from Luke chapter 24. And I find it is so, so incredible. We're talking about Jesus has been crucified, and it is alleged that he has rose from the dead. The, the women have went to the tomb, and then other people have went to the tomb and verified what the women have said, but they're still kind of in bewilderment. They're going, they say he's been risen, but we haven't found him, so we're not we're curious. Has he really risen? And it's called On the Road to Emmaus. Now the same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. And Jesus asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And I'm going to abbreviate some of this. And they basically said, have you been living in a cave? You don't know what is going on. I mean, come on. Everybody around here knows what is going on. They killed this guy who claimed to be the Messiah. And they, because he said, what's, what's been happening? They, they stood still. They looked at him and, he, and they said, you haven't heard, heard what's going on? He goes, well, what things? And then they told him that body was handed over to the rulers. And he was crucified. And Jesus said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And he walked with them a little further and he broke bread with them and then he vanished from their sight for just a little bit. And they were ecstatic that he was alive. But then, but then what happened is they were seven miles away from Jerusalem. Jesus disappeared, and what did they do? They walked immediately back to Jerusalem, seven miles to tell the disciples. When we were in, in um, is, Israel, the phrase that was used on certain events and places that we went to, they were called thin places. 
It's like the barrier between God and man was a little thinner there. And this was one of those places. And Mark Warren was up there, and he talked passionately about this passage where after the resurrection, Jesus went to two common people that were walking seven miles away from Jerusalem. He didn't go to the movers and shakers of society. He went to two common people, and one we know is named Clophus. Okay, we don't know anything about this person. We don't know anything about the second person, nothing. But Jesus Christ, at the most momentous time in history, would reveal himself to basically two unknowns. And you know what that is? That's us. We're not the disciples. We're not the movers and shakers in society. But Jesus Christ loved the common people. So they went back and they told the disciples, And when they were still talking about their experience with Jesus on the Emmaus Road, Jesus stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And they were startled and they were frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do do doubts arise in in your mind? Look at my hands and my feet. It is myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they, were sti- while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he said to them, these are some of the finest words. Ever, this is a bit of a, a segue here. I'm not taking an editorial. Some of the finest words in all of Scripture. Do you have anything here to eat? Because we will be eating in a resurrected body. And if that doesn't bring a smile to your face, then you don't like food. Because what we're going to do here in a little bit is what we do all the time is we always eat. And that is the finest words you can ever hear is in our resurrected bodies, we will be eating. And it goes on, he says, and they gave him a piece of broiled fish. And I'm, gonna, and I'm just going to end with one more, a couple more verses. And he took it and he ate it in their presence. And he said... This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. That's what he said. And I gave you just a sampling of some of the verses that that we, we need to touch on that Christ fulfilled the law and the prophets. Because it's very important, because if he didn't, then he's not God. And scripture didn't come true. But we see factually and historically that, yes, he did fulfill the law. He did fulfill the prophets. And next week, we're going to try and move on. We're going to go a little bit further on in in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to talk about how you have to have more faith than the Pharisees if you wish to get to heaven. And what does that mean? What, what does that look like, if you can quantify it? So, what I want you to go away with is the credibility of Scripture, the believability of Scripture. It is provable. It all fits together. And finally, that in some of those thin spots, Jesus Christ sought out people of, of no means. They were nobodies. That tells you what he thinks of us, is he values us. At the resurrection, the greatest event in all of Christendom, he was with two unknowns. 
And in a sense, that's like us. We should take joy in that, knowing that he cares about us that much. So let's pray as we close. Father, we thank you for the believability, the provability of your word and how it all fits together. We are, we are as, as believers in your word to study it, rightly dividing the word of truth. So we want to do that clearly and accurately. We want to have a, a, a ready answer for those that would ask us of the hope that is in us with meekness and respect. So Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word. And may it be a blessing to us today. In Christ's name we pray.